Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome back. Welcome back. We've had a long break. Yeah. We haven't done an episode for some time. Yes. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How are you, listeners? Year started well, hasn't it? Great. Perfect for us. Sometimes I wish it wasn't. I know. Um, yeah, we've had work and health and holiday related issues that meant we've had a little bit of a gap but today we are back and what are we talking about today hannah cheerful topic as usual um so there's there were a lot of things to choose from actually so we're all equally cheerful equally cheerful so we're not going to talk about the elections in britain no. We're not going to talk about the current escalating conflict between the United States and Iran. World War Three. We are going to talk about what's happening in India. Yes. So happy. yeah, happy. Happy, so happy. a bit of background. It's it's complex. Yes. Um, I'm sure many of our readers know more about it than I do, um, but I also am equally sure that a lot of our readers would like, literally, readers, listeners, <laughs> would like. To know more about it, but aren't necessarily sure where to go for accurate or useful information, which is what we're here for. That's a big promise. Have you ever promised to big give accurate promise. information? No, but we try. We try. We try to, we try. to, to stick to evidence-based um, stuff. So some background. So we have spoken, we have done multiple episodes about India and the, and the current Indian regime. Uh, we've described the regime as fascist on a number of different occasions. Yes, we have. Uh if anything, the fascism has become more fascistic since since we last spoke. Uh, and this is centered around a number of different state policies and state mechanisms to define citizenship. Yes. Uh, and therefore to exclude people from citizenship. Uh, there are a lot of acronyms. If you've been following the news, you will, you will uh, know that there are a number of different acronyms to describe various measures that the state is uh is using in order to to uh do what it wants to do so you have uh nrc which is national register of citizens uh which has been implemented in one border state that's in assam in northeast india uh where by if the the individual cannot prove to the government satisfaction that the individual is a citizen then they will be forced to move to a detention camp. And these detention camps are being built. The government sometimes tries to claim that they're not, but, you know, pictures exist, videos exist. There's evidence. There's evidence that, that the detention camps do exist. Uh, and then sort of the other side of the coin, if you like, and it's the, the combination of these various uh, various measures are equal to more than the sum of, its, sum of their parts, as it were, is uh, CAA, or the Citizenship Amendment Act, which says that anyone who has entered India after it's a particular date in nineteen in in uh, twenty fourteen, uh, anyone who has entered India after this this particular date and has left either Pakistan or Bangladesh or Afghanistan as a refugee who has been religiously persecuted can claim citizenship in India. In other words, if you are Hindu and you've been living in Pakistan, Afghanistan, or, or Bangladesh, and you've been persecuted because you've been a, you're a Hindu, therefore 
you you are eligible to claim citizenship uh in india in other words for the first time really a secular country which india is is putting in particular state sanctioned actual official uh, of, uh officially explicit if you like sanctions about discriminating between different people of of people of different religions uh for example the rohingyas who are another famously persecuted minority would not be eligible under the scheme to claim citizenship in india uh the 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 various religious minorities in sri lanka won't be able to claim citizenship uh in india um and then the final one is the npr the national national uh population register which tries to do a similar thing that the nrc does but on a wider scale and it is supposed to count uh the total number of people who are ordinarily resident in india it's basically a census but because it is being connected to immigration and uh uh the state uh tools to to distinguish between the right to live and the right not to live it it becomes much more uh horrific than any census could and all of these three measures have been variously introduced and publicized over the last few months towards the towards the second half of uh 2019 uh we would say in an effort to uh to undermine if not remove india's secular status and to move towards uh, a more solid more explicitly hindu india yes um which is which is what the bjp exists for yes i mean it is that is one of its kind of stated political aims and the kind of precursor institutions and you know parties and organizations you know pre-independence also have put forward an ideology that india is a hindu state hindu nation and is now a hindu state yes and uh we'll speak we've spoken in the past and we'll speak a little bit more in a second about some of the policies that some of the policies of the current government that predate uh these latest measures but i think one of the things that has changed is there is a sense finally that the government might have gone too far in terms of generating public protest uh kashmir when and we discussed kashmir in a previous episode when they when they uh removed article 370 and we uh reclassified the status of kashmir and took away its sovereignty uh that generated protest but nothing on the scale that we've seen seen uh over the last month or so um and there's been nothing like the brutality with which the protests have been dealt with that we've seen over the last last couple of months where this combination of uh state forces i.e. the police and armed militia who are usually party members of various hindu nationalist groups whether it's the bjp whether it's the student wing of the bjp which is the abvp rss and and others uh and this collusion between the two where uh political violence uh carried out by non-state forces um are parallel sort of parallel and and superimposed over political violence carried out by state forces uh 
in in a way to target minorities, religious minorities, caste castes, uh, the 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 subaltern castes, the lits, uh, and anyone who disagrees with them, basically. Yes. Um, what's so? What's happened in the last couple of days? So in the last couple of days, um, there have been there, oh, well before the the new year in the in the last last few days of 2018 there were wide, widespread protests across various universities uh one of the 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 recurring factors in terms of resistance against the current regime have been universities university students have been at the forefront of of resistance um and that's been happening for for uh i'll say for a few weeks uh just before the end just bef- before the the end of 2019 there were uh particular examples of specific brutality in terms of targeting protesters at two specific universities more than others one being the Aligarh Muslim University and the other being Jamia Millia Islamia in Delhi and of course both of these universities are historically muslim universities yes and that's clearly no coincidence uh since then uh there've been perhaps the most high profile case of uh police brutality at JNU Jawaharlal Nehru University uh perhaps India's most elite liberal arts university it's sort of uh, the flagship it's the flagship and and you know it's elite only in the sense of academic elite mm-hmm. uh it you don't need to be you don't need to have money to go there fees are non-existent uh they've been uh there's been a long running campaign by the current government against JNU mm-hmm. uh the the fact that JNU is academically elite and open to people from any backgrounds any socioeconomic background any religious background and the fact that the left of various different forms have have historically been very powerful on the campus those are three clear reasons why the current government do not like genu mm-hmm. uh and there've been a number of attempts of various different types to try to undermine it try to challenge it uh in effect to try to to change it or to close it down the latest one has been uh, a series of protests within genu about uh rising tuition fees and rising accommodation fees um so there's been there's they've been that that protest that movement has been going on for some time and uh there was a, a meeting involving staff and students and at that meeting masked vigilantes i guess is the word yep uh vouchers uh entered the university uh armed with sticks and rods and beat up both staff and students uh as far as i know 20 people were hospitalized mm-hmm. um some of them very seriously uh it is we, there is a health warning in that some information is sketchy it's difficult to get uh established truths though though there are videos that show show these masked vigilantes beating uh beating up students and staff there've been a lot of journalistic and investigative unofficial investigative work uh showing the culpability of the police showing the culpability of university administration there are stories of these vigilantes going around student accommodation buildings with lists of wh- which student is in what room so they can target students from kashmir they can target muslim students they can target uh dalit students um 
and this has fueled uh, a quite inspiring, I think, level of protest across pretty much every state, across most university campuses, and not just university campuses either. They've been my timeline has been flooded with image after image of massive wide-scale protests. Um, we can't afford to be complacent. We can't afford to over-romanticize the protest. There is still a huge amount of support for the current government and what it's doing. Um, but, as I said, finally, finally, it seems like they might have gone too far. Yeah. Well, with, um, with previous uh, either policies or actions by the government, there has been sort of in our world, obviously quite rigorous protest in various ways but th- that protest has often taken the form of um more intellectual protest writing about kind of writing editorials or blog posts um speaking about in the context of kind of lectures or meetings or um seminars workshops that kind of thing and often in the context of a either a university setting or a university-like setting. Um, I'm thinking specifically around demonetization and Nadar, um, which are older older policies. Um, and even around Kashmir as well, The a lot of the organizing around Kashmir has been about um, petitioning. It's been about advocating for um, the reinstatement of, of public services and um, communication services in Kashmir um, in a way that is less mass, I guess. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we have to be honest about the prejudices that that reveals, right? Yeah. That that the, the mass of India cares more about the rest of India than it does about Kashmir. I think I think that's, that's unfortunately, generally speaking, true. Um. You mentioned demonetization and Aadhaar in passing. Demonetization we've spoken about before in 2016 when the government decided that money wasn't money anymore and uh, on a Friday evening announced the immediate withdrawal of a large proportion of currency, of paper currency. Um, this led to, unsurprisingly, a, a huge downward trend in, in the national economy. It led to people queuing outside banks to get what little money they could. It led to people actually dying in queues while waiting for their money. Uh, it was horrendous, but it didn't generate mass protests. No. You know, there was a. Uh, I remember thinking at the time that this is a, a kind of exercise in obedience. The we talked about that. Yeah, the government. Uh, the government was uh, apparently using this as a way to tackle illegal ta- uh, money hoarding and and tax evasion. Didn't really work. Um, but again, there wasn't this this widespread protest because I think in part people had accepted, largely accepted the the government line about we do need to do this to to restore our tax uh, income, as it were, and and, and to tackle corruption. Uh, Aadhaar had no protest, as far as I know. Uh, Aadhaar was happened in the same year. It's the largest biometric ident- identity card. System. System. Uh, before that, India has had multiple other forms of identity cards. So we've had a national voter ID. Uh, at one point, I remember a ration card. When we had rationing, ration card was an identity um, 
a form of identity of course their passports but aadhar was the one that was supposed to include everyone and was the you know the clear and un- unambiguous and unquestionable form of id that all everyone could use now that we are bringing in nrc the national register of citizens it is interesting that aadhar doesn't qualify as a as a way to demonstrate citizenship because you have to demonstrate your family familial uh connection to india and not just your right to be an indian citizen but your parents and grandparents right to be an indian citizen as well uh this in a country where until relatively recently paperwork was not seen as essential so many 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 families including my own uh wouldn't necessarily be able to demonstrate paperwork that proves the citizenship of the generation before mine my parents don't have birth certificates and that's that's quite common um but it's interesting that neither demonetization nor the nor the other system and really sadly not even kashmir uh managed to generate quite as much protest and i think to be fair there is possibly a cumulative effect going on as well right the 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 proverbial straw that broke, broke the camel's back that uh finally uh people's people have have realized quite how fundamentally the the government is transforming the country as it were yeah well there's a, a kind of spectrum of exclusion yeah. and there's a tipping point i think in terms of who could reasonably be excluded and once once a certain number of people see that they're moving closer towards that category of exclusion but aren't necessarily there but people that are closer to them are you start to see the machinery of a fascist government at work more clearly the rhetoric has less of an impact on you because you see the reality and that it, it's disjointed and disconnected from the rhetoric whereas a, a kind of party line on kashmir or a party line on adar you know adar was meant to be inclusive the the narrative the rhetoric of adar was inclusivity it wasn't actively drawing a line between who gets to be included and who might be excluded it is you know according to to people who pay attention to kind of theories of surveillance and theories of the violence of the state and you know mechanisms by which the state can can intervene in in your daily life you know for those of us that read foucault and for those of us that have you know kind of a working knowledge of technology and the power of technology adar was scary so i'm thinking of um you know academics that we know who at the time in 2016 were writing about speaking about um researching and studying the mechanics of adar and and talking about it as as a potentially dangerous tool but it's the rhetoric of it matched the experience of it for a lot of people the rhetoric of of some of these new registers is now scary as you say you can't prove that your grandparents have a connection to india and in fact that connection is potentially a possibility for exclusion and this is kind of where we're coming to with this episode which has to do with partition and you know you've talked before about your connections to what is now bangladesh you have ancestral 
connections to a state that isn't India. Yep. Um, my neither of my grandparents were born in what is now India. Uh, my parents were born in what is now India, but that's not easy to prove. Um, I mean, as it happens, I don't have Indian citizen, citizenship anyway. I've 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 never had. Uh, but if I had Indian citizenship and were I to be living in India, I don't know immediately how I would prove my right to be a citizen along the lines that is expected. Now, there is, one should say, like all forms of inclusion and exclusion, there are various formal and informal privileges that cloak you, right? So I imagine that before I get excluded, there are going to be a whole host of other people whose access to privilege is more tenuous than mine, who are going to be excluded before me. But that sense then that something is shifting so that anybody's position, anybody's uh, legitimacy can be questioned uh, is a big part of this, this the, the rise in protests, I think. Yeah. The closer you get to the possibility of being excluded, the the more immediate the threat becomes. Do you want to say a bit more about the connection between partition and and what we're seeing today? Oh, gosh. Well, so we've talked about partition many times. It is is the thing that brought us together in the first place. Um, Partition haunts the subcontinent it haunts the former british empire it haunts south asians in diaspora um it's it is always present uh in the form of kind of various various ghosts um and it is it's obviously present here partly because the the identity categories that are at stake map closely to the identities that were excavated in the years before partition and were kind of formed and constructed by the partition process. The border itself is at play here as well. We'll talk about some of the cross-border stuff that's been happening as well because Pakistani students have also been involved in protest and debate. Um, And so there there is a border discourse at work already um but the the process of nation building from the 1930s onwards in in what was british india and is now india pakistan and bangladesh has always involved debate and discourse around what constitutes a citizen of the nation um, there are three nations now that are kind of spoken about, but at the time there was a potential one um, and then a potential two. And that has always been a contested contested conversation. And it was never solved. So the, the, the British government kind of naively and paternalistically and, you know, in a, a form of epistemic violence, as Spivak would say, um, believed that partition would be the final arbiter, that partition would define once and for all who counted as an Indian and who counted as a Pakistani. And then everyone could get on with their lives. 
Obviously, that's not what happened. What partition did was it actually widened the field, so to speak, in terms of being able to challenge or fight over what constitutes a citizen of the new states and allowed for, um, I think, more more violence, the possibility of repression, the possibility of... Um, of conflict um, and, and it embedded a kind of form of eventful violence in the subcontinent. And so this is, I mean, it, it, you know, scholars think back to um, Operation Blue Star in the 1980s involving um, uh, Sikh nationalist movements and Sikh paramilitaries and government violence in um, Amritsar, uh, in Ayodhya, uh, we've talked about Ayodhya before in Gujarat in 2001. Partition comes back and is kind of dredged up, but in a, a kind of new fashion, in a sense. It, it takes on a new face um, as a lens for talking about what's happening. And the Hindu nationalist government at the moment is putting forward a vision of India that that began at the turn of the century. Um yeah, and, and what's interesting is this the, the vision of India that it is portraying is not, or, or rather, let me rephrase, the, the vision of partition it is portraying is the same vision of partition, the same narrative of partition that we grew up with. Yes. Which is Congress, coded as secular, uh, wanted a, a, a unified, independent India. Muslim League, coded as religious extremist, wanted the two nation theory. Want demanded that that Muslims be given the, the, a separate homeland, and that's why Pakistan was created, which is factually misleading. Yeah, uh, but that is the narrative of history that we grew up with. That is the narrative of of history since nineteen forty seven in India, and it didn't matter as much apparently it of course did it didn't matter as much when the government was supposedly secular but now that the government is explicitly not secular it becomes incredibly easy to connect the citizenship amendment act to that narrative of partition in other words if it is true that muslims demanded a separate homeland then why do, why should muslims be allowed to carry on in india muslims should go to pakistan yeah. why should we allow a, a, a muslim person who wants to come from Pakistan or Bangladesh into India, we shouldn't, because that's the point of partition, that Muslims demanded a separate country, they should now go, go to that separate country. And it is, I was saying this before we turned the machine on, it isn't always you see the effects of a biased, objectively flawed narrative of history play out this clearly. Uh, as as you have with with the 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 discourse surrounding the citizenship amendment act and the way in which a hegemonic but particularly flawed reading of partition gets mobilized into justifying why india should privilege hindus yeah and i think it's important to to add as the the white person in the room that narrative that you've described is also the narrative that most most people in 
certainly in Britain and the United States, who know anything about the subcontinent, and that isn't everyone. But those who do, I'm thinking specifically of people who like work for the government and have worked in India or Pakistan or Bangladesh, come back and say that story. That is the narrative that they also know because it is also an imperial narrative. It lets the British government off the hook. It creates a nationalist movement that is born in the subcontinent and that partition is endemic to the subcontinent. Um, of course, the historical record and what academics have been talking about for, for decades, people who study this, both uh, Indian and Pakistani academics, but also um, British and American and certainly French academics, talk about something different that the colonial government government was actively involved in creating the conditions for partition and then were actively involved in participating in this this kind of I don't want to say nationalist because it's 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 not overtly nationalist in the kind of nationalism that we talk about here, you know, white nationalists or whatever, but it is a, a narrative that forwards the building of a nation state. And as you say, when it was secular, that narrative meant that India, India was a secular state and Pakistan was not. Which leads us to the next. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the, we, we have much more to say about secularism in India. Yeah. But I think what I, I guess one way to start talking about that is to recognize, and this hasn't been recognized nowhere near enough. Um, and when I say it hasn't been recognized enough, I mean by liberal, left-leaning, maybe Communist Party voting Hindu Indians, that the Indian version of secularism is specifically a Hindu form of secularism. Yeah. It's it's a, it's it's not uh it's it's not a secularism that comes without any religious baggage. Um, you know, concepts like Mother India, which is seen to be a secular concept. Well, it's it's not. It's a Hindu religious concept which is then borrowed from borrowed into secularism in the way that secularism in Britain when it exists, even though Britain isn't a secular country, but secularism in Britain when it exists is a Christian form of secularism. And in the United States, yes. which I think is the the best example. Exactly. Um, and unless we recognize that, we can't begin to understand that even when India was secular, even when the Indian government was secular, the position of Muslims, minorities, low caste, uh, communities was always tenuous within the the parameters of secularism. Yes, um, and a lot of the discourse that we are seeing now from, you know, as I said, liberal left leaning Hindus who are bemoaning the loss of secularism, who are talking about how uh, how much Modi has changed India, and how the India that they remember, their India, has disappeared comes from a place of huge privilege because the, the people who are left out of that secularism don't recognize this inclusive, wonderful, secular India. Yeah. That's not to say it didn't exist for some people. I think, I think there has been a shift, but it's not necessarily a wholesale transformation. 
Yeah. Yeah, this the secular ideal. Um, and before we uh, turn the machine on, you were talking about the relationship between secularism and Nehru. Um, that the Congress, Congress secularism as well was, was, was really contested. So in the, you know, in the thirties, well, the twenties and thirties, when Gandhi's form of nationalist protest and, and nationalist ideology, um, was really shaping the Congress party and shaping the Congress anti-colonial movement, Gandhi professed a form of secularism I and mean, he claimed that what he what he was doing was secular but of course his critics who were Muslim but not just Muslim certainly Dalit as well said no your your form of protest and your your form of nationalism and your form of of government is rooted in Hindu ideology and rooted in Hindu caste Hindu ideology. I mean, there is no Hindu ideology that isn't caste. Yeah. But caste is Hindu ideology. Yeah. And Gandhi didn't appreciate those criticisms. He he worked very hard to try and deflect a lot of those criticisms. And it's it's very interesting that Nehru came along with a different rhetoric and you described this described it as a kind of a historical accident that it was nehru yeah so i've been thinking thinking about this and and it's a simplistic take i know but i think it it has perhaps some merit the fact that for four decades roughly maybe slightly more uh even when mostly it has been in power it being the congress party but even when it hasn't been in power, it has been a significant political force in the way that arguably today it's not. And throughout all of that time, Congress has been officially secular. You mentioned the, the Operation Blue Star and the and the genocidal attacks against the Sikhs that was con- carried out by by Congress uh, by by Congress forces. Congress Congress has was in government during Ayodhya has to claim has to accept some culpability. But the the official rhetoric at least was secular and i think when people bemoan the loss of secular india what they're bemoaning is the loss of nehruvian india in other words i think people are making a connection that because a nehruvian government kept getting elected again and again that meant india was secular i think that the reason the Nehruvian government kept getting elected again and again was the cachet it had from achieving independence. Yeah. And the fact that Nehru was secular was almost by the by. I've just, as you were talking, I've just got out the the text of the preamble of the Indian constitution, which in in quite a moving way has featured in pretty much every protest that is going going on in India now, sort of mass readings, reading aloud of the of the preamble to the Indian Constitution, which says, declares India to be a sovereign, socialist, secular, and democratic republic. Um, you know, one didn't over mythologize and over romanticize the Constitution to say that that's a wonderful aspirational document, uh, but. I think if we place too much emphasis on the connection between the preamble as an aspirational document and the ground realities of life 
in India in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, then we are missing out on a much longer tradition of casteist Islamophobic Hinduism, which dominate North India and parts of South India for much, much longer than the Nehruvian vision of the sovereign, secular, socialist republic. Yeah. In a way, and this is probably a, a question about historiography and how we tell, how we narrate the story of the past, we we can only understand partition and, and independence to a point in the sense that we can only understand it for us now. And we have lots of ways of trying to get at the most accurate and complex and nuanced story. But ultimately, the story that we have now is one that has been molded and shaped by events since partition. Yeah, so so Ayodhya changes what partition means. Exactly. When when the government takes away Article 370 and denies, uh, denies any autonomy to Kashmir, that changes what partition means. Exactly. But what we have then is a, is a question about about secularism as well and what secularism means and has meant and in i i do wonder how much because we know as kind of people who study the history of of partition and anti-colonial nationalism in india we know that the congress vision for independent india was a vision it wasn't an accurate depiction of what india was like for it, most it, people in the it 1940s. It wasn't meant to be. It wasn't intended to be. Exactly. Yeah. So when... I think that the the disjuncture is endemic in terms of, of going to the Constitution or going to the idealized rhetoric of the nationalists who won independence in the same way that it's... that it misunderstand... that we misunderstand nonviolence and nonviolent protest and how we ascribe um, kind of moral superiority to those activists who use it. You know, life it, life was very difficult. It reminds me a little bit of um, the, the sometimes inspiring, sometimes painful trajectory of uh, the poet Faiz Ahmed Faiz. Mm. Um, and the particular poem song guzzle that I'm thinking of mm-hmm. is called Hamde Kenge, We Shall See. Uh, Faiz wrote this in the context of uh, General Zia's Pakistan and Zia's attempt to Islamicize Pakistan. 1970s. Yes. And um, there is there is a particular, particular moment. There's a, a bootlegged audio recording available on YouTube, which we will share. Uh, where the, the famous Pakistani ghazal singer Iqbal Bano sang the song Hamde Kenge in Lahore in the, in front of 50,000 people wearing a black sari. Zia had just banned sari as a as an un-Islamic form of clothing. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you understand Urdu, especially, maybe even if you don't, uh, as, you, as you hear the recording, the, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because she's leading... This this audience, a crowd of fifty thousand people, who are chanting "Long Live Revolution" in clubs in the bud, as she's singing, "We shall see," and it's this anthem of protest and optimism that talks about how, you know, the 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 false idols, and he uses the phrase "false idols," of who are in government now, 
will be swept away. It is certain that we shall see a new dawn. We shall see a new, a new nation, a new society, a new world. So, so revolutionary and and perhaps utopian in the best sense of the word. Over the last few weeks in India, Indian students, initially in Jamia Millia's uh, university and then across all the university protests have been singing the same song and now in a tragic ironic perhaps horribly appropriate move uh, the indian institute of technology iit in kanpur the administration have launched an investigation to see if this song is anti-hindu because it talks about the dismantling of false idols and that lack of historical knowledge from university administration says so much about the various traditions of religious nationalism versus secularism that have existed across both sides of the border. So when complacent, uh, privileged, liberal elite Hindus in India talk about what the BJP is doing is transforming India into another Pakistan, the, the, the myopia in terms of sort of historical knowledge is so so noticeable and it has this has been a feature that has been getting more and more and more common where the the secularism which as you as we've said was always aspirational was always intended to be aspirational becomes another stick with which india can beat pakistan so as uh uh the academic priyam vadagopal put on on uh on facebook or twitter the, these people, they don't want to be the Hindu nationalist enemy of Pakistan. They just want to be the secular enemy of Pakistan. And there is perhaps never more so than now an urgent, urgent need to actually critically examine the various forms of secularism that have existed in the subcontinent across borders, the various ways in which they've fueled each other and the various ways in which mainstream political parties have always used secularism as an alibi to hide their own anti-people policies or policies of inequality or whatever. Yeah. Um, and as India gets engulfed into into Hindu nationalism, into fascism, I've been saying this multiple times on on uh, on my social media and, you know, it it seems to me un, unarguably true now india is a fascist state india is now a fascist state there is the 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 systems of democracy have been transformed to the point where india is now a fascist state um one of the things that bec- that is becoming more and more urgent is to explore what exactly indian secularism subcontinental secularism has meant what it hasn't meant, uh, and what are the dangers of using sort of simplistic nostalgia to go back to 60s and 70s as this halcyon days of, of secularism in India. A big plug for historians there. Yeah. And the importance of studying studying the past carefully and finding ways to remind people. Hope that's been of interest. Um, let us know if you have any questions, criticisms. 
Anything to add? Yeah. What do we miss? Um, if you haven't been following the story in India, then please do so. Uh, it will get much worse before it gets better. And we will need allies everywhere we can. So um, it's not easy. Uh, the media in, in United Kingdom and United States haven't been following the story at all. But, you know, go out, search for search for what material you can and, and uh, join the struggle. Till next week. Take care. Look after yourselves. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Rechaudhry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?